Elizabeth Barrett is a wife, mother, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. She uses all of these skills to address the subjects we all struggle with in this conversation with the Reluctant Therapist. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Hank. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Um, I am thinking about our education. And not that we're doing the show about education today, Hank, but I am curious to know, do you know what the Voting Rights Act is? Do you know what it did or when it was passed? I'm sorry to say I do not. And, that, and that's okay, because I'm actually relieved that you said that. Okay. I know several voting laws. I know when it was lowered from 21 to 18. I know women were given the right to vote at some point, but I don't know specifically what you're talking about. Well, and I was concerned for myself and my own education, because when I read what the Voting Rights Act was or is, um, I was surprised that I did not know this and sad that I didn't know this and wondered, when was I flirting? with the guy next to me in class when we were taught this piece and so I missed it or was it something that was never introduced throughout my public education and you and I are old enough that this the the Voting Rights Act would have been current history something that we would have been taught in our civics class and I actually had a civics class in high school I don't know if you did but and I don't think they really even do that anymore so I, I should have learned this information but so just to let you know, the Voting Rights Act actually came out of, um, it was it, it was in response to the march, the famous march. And many people saw the movie Selma, right? So the, the march from Selma to Montgomery, as a result of that, you know, President Johnson felt so much pressure to make some, take some sort of action that he passed this landmark legislation and signed it into law uh, August 6, 1965. And this happened during the height of the civil rights movement, and it was signed to enforce voting rights uh, guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So the voting rights already were there by the 14th and 15th Amendment. They had to pass a law forcing states to enforce the voting rights for all. And then Congress actually went on and amended the act five more times, expanding the protection, making this the most effective piece of civil rights legislation ever enacted in the country. And it ended up resulting in mass inclusion of racial minorities who had long been denied access to voting uh, because of literacy laws or other attempts and obstacles uh, to deny them access. And although even though the law was passed, access didn't immediately improve, um, but there was now a way for people to um, challenge voter restrictions and access the right to vote. So, for example, in Mississippi alone, turnout among black voters increased from 6% in 1964 to 59% in 1969. So this this is a fundamental piece of, of our history that I, I'm hoping that everyone who's listening is nodding their head saying, duh, I knew this, <laughs> but I didn't know this. And hopefully, Hank, now you're feeling like you have a little conversation starter for your next uh, coffee party. I appreciate the uh, insight. Well, and, and I think it's important to understand this, the Voting Rights Act because there has been efforts in the last few years. In 2013, uh, the Supreme Court actually overturned a big part of the Voting Rights Act. And I think that's one of the reasons I also was so shocked and dismayed that I didn't know about it, because it's been in place for a long period of time. But quietly, because people don't pay attention to something that they assume has already been uh, put into place and can never be changed, when we think something is in place permanently, things can happen uh, that that weaken laws and and kind of cause us to go backwards. So the Supreme Court overturned, overturned a key section of the act that required lawmakers in states with a history of discrimination against minority voters um, and get federal funding that they must get federal permission before changing any voting rules. So by overturning this section, it set into motion changes in voting laws in 15 states um, that have now made it difficult once again for minority voters to access their voting rights. So why am I talking about this today? Well, you'll understand if you hang with me. <laughs> because 
this piece of the Voting Rights Act is a small part or, or actually a large part of something that's happening around the country in many areas when it comes to women's reproductive health rights, when it comes to marriage equality rights. We have these efforts to fight for these civil rights. And then once they are passed, we assume that everything is done and we can go back to our lives as it is. But if we aren't vigilant, if we're not vigilant in passing along the values and history that led to the passage of these laws, if we don't continue teaching the next generation uh, about the fight and struggle to get these laws enacted, then these laws will be stripped and no one will have the history or carry the knowledge uh, enough to know that they need to fight again, that they need to stand up. And I bring this up because this summer, and you might remember I talked about, um, my husband and I took a trip, and we traveled from Washington, D.C. to Texas. But along the way, we ended up in Montgomery, Alabama. And I don't know about you, but Montgomery, Alabama was never on my list of must-see places uh, in, in my journey across the United States. But I have to tell you that my two days in Montgomery, Alabama changed my life uh, in a fundamental way. And so the way it changed my life is probably too long for today's conversation, but I want to focus on one piece of this experience. While we were in Montgomery, which, if you don't know, um, is an interesting dichotomous place, because on one hand, it was the first home of the Confederacy. The first White House of the Confederacy is actually in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, right downtown, on the same downtown corridor, in the same downtown corridor, as the seat of the civil rights movement. Uh, The march from Selma finished walking up this main boulevard in Montgomery, Alabama, to the steps of the state capitol. Um, It is the place of Rosa Parks' uh, famous bus stop. It is the home of the Greyhound bus station, where the Freedom Riders stepped off and were met by mob violence. Um, It is the home of the seat of so much of our civil rights history that that many people don't know. And, And I'm saying many people because I didn't know, so I'm assuming that you didn't know, and maybe I'm completely wrong. But again, there was no one in Montgomery but my husband and I while we were there. Literally, we were alone walking around these historic places. And one of the places we stopped was the Civil Rights Memorial Center. And this center is a tribute to those who lost their lives in the fight for civil rights. And the reason that this place had such a huge impact on me is because the Civil Rights Memorial Center, the people that they are honoring were common citizens, were housewives and pharmacists and lawyers and farmers, um, not, you know, many white, um, many minorities, many African Americans. It, it was it was a mix of people who were willing to give their lives for something greater than themselves. And for many of the people who lost their lives, they were already enjoying their right to vote, their full citizenship, but they could not rest knowing that others didn't have the same access to rights. And so they put themselves on the front line in many ways and lost their lives. And I, and I left there overwhelmed. And we did a show about this earlier this summer about, is there something that you believe so deeply and that you'd be willing to give your life for? Be- because this has stayed with me so strongly that I'm wondering what it is that these people had, these common citizens that maybe I don't have, um, that I don't see a lot around me. What is that fire, that, that uh, dedication to the well-being of all above themselves that led them to do this? And so it's not haunted me, but it's stuck with me. And the other part of my visit to the Civil Rights Memorial Center was meeting the young woman who was running the center, um, Emily Mumford. She's 24 years old. And she just told me this um, as we were talking a few minutes ago because she's my guest today. I had no idea she was 24 years old, which makes this even more of a powerful conversation. Um, Because in speaking to Emily Mumford, um, I was curious to know what led her to come to Alabama from Michigan uh, to devote her life 
to continuing the work of the founding fathers, mothers and fathers of the civil rights movement. Um, she's, she's a young white girl from a well-to-do part of the North. Um, so in an effort to introduce you to interesting and inspirational people, because I think all of our lives are enriched when we get a chance to hear from interesting and inspirational people, I also want to encourage a conversation between all of us about the importance of continued participation um, in w- work towards civil rights, the civil rights movement, the beginning of the work from the civil rights movement. It's needed now more than ever when we see the eroding of the Voting Rights Act, when we see efforts to defund Planned Parenthood or to quietly attack access for women's reproductive health care, when we see uh, the fight for marriage equality, and although the, the law has been passed, access is still a struggle. We might not resonate particularly with the struggles of the South and voting rights, but we all understand inequality on some level. And again, when we turn our back or dismiss as unimportant one piece of the civil rights movement, we actually weaken the entire movement. So that's my story. Today, I I welcome Emily Mumford to this conversation. And Emily, thank you for waiting so patiently. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. And if you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I am Elizabeth Barrett. Uh, You can be part of the conversation in many ways. You can call us at 805-781-3875. We'll open the phones in a little bit so you can uh, join in with your thoughts or questions for Emily. You can join us on our Facebook page by liking us, The Reluctant Therapist. Uh, Send me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. We also now have our um, shows on podcasts. They're available through iTunes, The Reluctant Therapist. If you want to download or subscribe to our iTunes, um, they'll send you the latest show every week. So you have it there waiting to listen to when you're out working out. And then you can also stream shows at kcbx.org. So Emily, um, let me tell everyone a little bit about you what I know, and then you can fill it in. But Emily, Emily Mumford serves as the coordinator for the SPLC on campus, which is the Southern Poverty Law Center on campus, a program designed to engage college students in social activism. In this role, she helps students launch and support campus chapters across the country. She joined, she joined the SPLC in 2014 and worked uh, previously as the operations coordinator for the Civil Rights Memorial Center, where I met her, in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, in addition to her work at SPLC, Emily has coordinated service learning trips for college students with the Freedom Foundation in Selma, Alabama, since 2011. Uh, Emily is a graduate of Gordon State College. Emily... What led you to this work? Well, Elizabeth, I think that that is a is a big question, but I'll try um, to keep it limited to the time that we have <laughs> on the show. Um, I do want to start out and just say that in 2011, the SPLC, so the Southern Poverty Law Center, conducted a report called Teaching the Movement, the State Standards We Deserve, and it examined um, state standards and curriculum requirements for teaching the modern civil rights movement, which many of us know as the time period between, you know, 1954 and 1964, the time period that you observed at the Civil Rights Memorial Center. And out of the 50 states, more than half, 35 to be exact, failed um, and received an F on their teaching of the modern civil rights movement. And both Michigan and California were included in those 35 failing states. And when I was researching this this morning, I just thought that it was um, relevant to add because growing up, you know, in a predominantly white uh, northern Michigan quite affluent town, um, I was pretty sheltered by kind of my reality. And the history that I learned while I learned about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and some key parts of the movement, um, I did not learn about the thousands of people that played an important role in the modern civil rights movement. And so when I ended up doing some service learning trips during my first two years of college, it actually led me to Selma, Alabama, and I was deeply moved and inspired and at the same time frustrated and outraged to see that the current state, um, not just of Alabama, but of our country, and I felt like that trip really opened my eyes, not only to what was happening in 2011 at the time, but then the importance of really making my life 
matter in a certain way. And you know, there's a lot of ways to make that happen. But what I really felt convicted by on my trip was, what am I going to do to to leave a legacy just like a Viola Luizzo, who was a housewife from Detroit, Michigan, who had five kids and drove down to Selma, Alabama, marching the whole way um, from the Selma to Montgomery March, or Medgar Evers, or Willie Edwards, or a lot of the martyrs that we honor at the Memorial Center, and really felt like now was the time to do to do something with my life. And so I decided to move to Selma, Alabama, and I transferred schools to be closer so I could do the work in Selma and still finish my education. And I will tell you that I have not regretted it since I packed up my Buick and drove about 15 hours south. So, And I have to ask from a mom's perspective. Sure. How did your parents respond when you came back from your service learning trip? Which Was it part of an alternative spring break or was it? It was. It was. It was part of an alternative spring break. It was um, an organization I was heavily involved with my freshman and sophomore year at college. So as a parent, I've sent you off to college and you do this wonderful service learning alternative spring break where you give back to a community, an impoverished community. But then you come home and you say to me, I'm packing my Buick and I'm devoting my life to helping others. How did your parents respond? I think initially, you know, that they had probably hoped that it would just stay a service week and not maybe a service life in some ways. Not that they didn't want me to make a difference and and do something that was important to me. But, you know, I think as a parent, of course, I'm not a parent yet, so I I don't know what that would feel like. But I know that my mom was, you know, worried for my safety and concerned about my well-being and, you know, to have their only child move from, you know, a small town in northern Michigan to a small, you know, rural town in Alabama. Um, I think it, it would maybe be odd if that didn't raise some concerns initially. But what I will tell you that my parents, um, have seen over the past four years is is my life, and they've seen the impact that it's had both on me and living in Alabama and on others. And so I think that any hesitation or maybe fear that they initially had has really um, transcended, transcended into support um, and just being proud of the work that I'm doing. Beautifully said. <laughs> um, so what did you find yourself doing initially? How did you initially get involved with your work? And I, I don't know if um, many people even know what the Southern Poverty Law Center is or does. Maybe you can give a little history about that. Assuming that is that where you first went to work when you moved down there? So I, um, I actually went to the Civil Rights Memorial Center, just like you were describing, Elizabeth, when I was a visitor on my service learning trip. So actually met Leisha Brooks, who's the director of the Civil Rights Memorial Center and the outreach director for the Southern Poverty Law Center. She was my tour guide at the time, um, and Leisha just did a beautiful job really captivating um, us on the current the current and the past inequality that was taking place, not just in Alabama, but all across the country. So the SPLC had always kind of been in my mind since I had come to Selma. But when I moved, I was still a college student. So I volunteered on the weekends, and I had kind of some odd jobs while I was finishing college. But I stayed in touch with Leisha that whole time. And when I graduated, she had let me know um, of a you know position that they had open at the center, and so I applied, and that's when I began working at the Civil Rights Memorial Center. But for those of you that don't know, the Southern Poverty Law Center is a nonprofit um, civil rights law firm that was actually started in Montgomery, Alabama in 1971 um, by Joe Levin and Morris Dees. And while our work is mainly in the southeast, we have partners all across the United States that really support us in the legal work that we do. And it's really a three-pronged approach. So there's, you know, the legal side where we will, you know, have cases for individuals that are underrepresented or marginalized in their communities. We also have teaching tolerance, which is an anti-bias curriculum that's passed along to over 450,000 educators across the country, so I'm sure many in California as well. And then we also have the Intelligence Project, which tracks hate groups all across the United States, and that's how the Southern Poverty Law Center's name really got on the map, was their work in bankrupting the KKK in the late 80s. So if you are ever interested in, you know, the current state of hate, even in the United States or in your own state, you can always go to the SPLcenter.org and actually view our hate map, and you can see 
the 784 hate groups that we currently are tracking all across the United States, including in Michigan and in California. And so you've transitioned your job, you said, um, with the SPLC, and it sounds like that they're trying to broaden their uh, impact in on college campuses. And, and tell me how that came about and why that's important. Absolutely. So this is a project that the SPLC has actually been interested in before I came on staff. Um, and it just worked out that this year was really a, a perfect opportunity to launch SPLC on campus. But the SPLC really saw a need to engage um, this next generation, you know, primarily students in college, but it's not just limited, you know, to college students. We're looking for, you know, support from, you know, really anyone that's interested. And we've had a lot of um, college professors and different people that are maybe in the college scene but not college students certainly support with this initiative as well. Um, but we feel that it's crucial for, you know, this next generation to really be educated on the issues and topics that are important today because I think if we're not careful, just like myself, you know, Elizabeth, when you were describing the Voting Rights Act, I can really relate. I I came to Montgomery and, and all of this information seemed new to me for the first time and it was new. And I think if we're not careful, particularly my generation, it can be easy to look at those things as things that happened in the past mm-hmm. um, and say, oh, we've, we've come a long way, we've, you know, Look at all the strides we've made, and while we have made some progress, I think if we just focus on the progress that's been made, we aren't really able to open our eyes and see the state of things today in 2015. And that's really one of the hopes of SPLC on campus, is that we'll engage the the college students that are already activists, and then we'll inspire the college students who maybe haven't found their activism or their passion yet, but are interested and do care in something. Because I believe each of us care in something. It's just what are we caring about, you know, and if, if there's a way that we can engage college students in something, you know, related to the bigger picture of what's happening in the United States, then we certainly want to be able to help with that. You are listening to Emily Mumford, 24-year-old activist, and uh, I don't know what to say. Are you the coordinator for the SPLC on campus? Yes, okay. that's Co- Coordinator for the SPLC on campus. Uh, she moved her life from Michigan to Selma, Alabama, after being inspired on a service earning trip. Uh, she inspires me. <laughs> I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. If you're just tuning in, I started the show um, introducing the Voting Rights Act and uh, wondering if you all are up to date on your history of the civil rights movement and wondering if you understand what actually happened between 1954 and 1964 and how it uh, changed the course of this country, um, changed the way laws were passed, changed uh, who served in in politics. Um, And if you weren't up to date with your civil rights history, maybe question you a little bit about uh, your understanding of of the women's reproductive rights movement or marriage equality movement and how if we aren't vigilant in keeping track of what's going on in these three areas, uh, rights that have been fought for and people's lives have been lost for um, will be lost to all of us because we have to stay vigilant. And I'd love to hear from you today. 805-781-3875 is the number to be part of this conversation. 805-781-3875. What do you you know about civil rights? And and what do you you think about uh, teaching activism or teaching civic engagement or remembering that our children, unless they are taught the history of their country are doomed to forget what has come before them. And as I mentioned, or as Emily actually mentioned before, um, there, and you had talked about, was it a, um, a survey that was done on what kind of civil civics was taught in the schools? It was a report um, that was actually conducted in 2011 by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and it was titled Teaching the Movement, the State Standards We Deserve, and it examined um, the state standards and curriculum requirements for teaching the modern civil rights movement. And I even had to ask myself what is considered the modern civil rights movement, and that was from 1954 to 1964. And so you said that almost half the states failed in... Over half. Over half. five out of 50. And including California. 
um, uh-huh. which would, at one point in time would have, been consider- would have been considered one of the more progressive public education systems in the country. Um, and unfortunately, California fails in a lot of areas, but it's, it's disappointing that we would fail in teaching the modern civil rights history because after learning what I did this summer, I really feel like in many ways the civil rights movement was our modern-day revolutionary war. Um, that this history is so profound, the impact on our country is so profound, that it should have its own um, piece in teaching history to our young people. Because, again, I think in order to engage the next generation in being active and caring um, citizens, they have to understand what it took to get where they are today. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. 805-781-3875 is the number to be part of the conversation, and I do invite you in. Um, Emily, as we're talking about um, your work with SPLC and what your hopes are, what exactly does an SPLC on campus look like? You know, how do people get involved, and and what exactly uh, goes on for the students? That's a great question. So, Again, as I mentioned, SPLC on campus, this is our first year really having a full launch. So there aren't many requirements in starting a chapter. We're really just looking for either interested students or interested staff. So this is a great for adult listeners out there, too, if you, you know, are involved on the college campus or an alum at a college campus and you feel like this would be a good thing to bring to that college or university. It's certainly something that non-college students can initiate as well, too. And SPLC on campus actually has a website, and it's splconcampus.org. And maybe, Elizabeth, I can send this information out to you, and it can even go on your Facebook page or something of that nature. Absolutely. Um, but you can register at SPLC on campus. And basically, the only requirements are that you have a faculty or staff advisor, and then I work with you in creating an individualized chapter um, that really meets, you know, the goals um, that you're interested in creating. So we have four focus areas this year, which are LGBT rights, economic justice, juvenile justice, and then civil rights, history, or alternative spring break. And all of those, you know, key ideas we felt really highlight the work that the Southern Poverty Law Center does, but then we also, you know, ask students to really include topics that they're passionate about as well that may be outside of those four focus areas. So, for instance, you know, we have a university in Kentucky who was really, they were really interested in human trafficking, so they've, you know, held a few events on economic justice and juvenile justice, and they've also held some events on human trafficking as well, too. So the great thing about SPLC on campus is it's really looking to channel, you know, activists that are already passionate about certain topics, along with giving them the support and resources um, to advocate on both a national and a local level. So by connecting with SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, these activists who already would be doing work on campus are, are joining maybe a greater national movement? Yes. Okay, that, that's why I was just curious because I, I think one of the questions is why, you know, why, why are we trying to build SPLC? Is there some value in having all of these different activist efforts on campus uh, be under one umbrella? You know, I think that's that's a great question. I just want to be sure to clarify. The goal of SPLC on campus is not, um, while we, of course, want to inform individuals on the work that we do, um, the goal isn't that they would just be focused on the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center, but that they'd be able to use the resources that we do have through teaching tolerance and through staff support, including myself, to really propel their their own passions, too. So, If anyone's familiar with, like, Amnesty International or Oxfam, they have a similar program where they have college campuses, you know, all across the country that have smaller chapters, and the hope would just be that we'd be able to provide, you know, interested college students with supplies and resources, and then they could use, you know, the information that we've already gathered, but also their their own passions as well, too. So you work with college students, and you're not that far away from having been a college student yourself. I'm curious to know what it is you see. What is the passion of your generation? What do you, what do you believe in? What does this millennial generation believe in? You know, I don't, I don't know that I can speak for all <laughs> millennials, um, but what I, what I will say is I think that there really is a growing trend to see um, a full equality or a greater equality. And what I mean by that 
So I think a lot of young people recognize the progress that we've made, um, but they see that there's more to go. And a lot of students that I've talked to even recently through SPLC on campus, you know, there's some that are really interested, and when we go ahead and meet, they have a whole strategic plan on how they're going to, you know, change their campus and change their community. And then I think there's a lot of students like myself who really wanted to help and make a difference, but they don't know where to start. And I think education is a, is a key part of that. And I will say that that was really what was missing for me um, before the wheels really started turning when I came to Selma was that I just wasn't educated on, on my past or what was going on presently. And so I think a lot of young people are really interested in getting educated because I think once, you're ed- once you have a greater education, um, an education that maybe isn't always taught in the classroom, then you can really find your own individual passion because I think there are a lot of things to be passionate about, you know, today in 2015. And so I don't know that there's one common passion, but I, I do see more of a trend to really equality for all, if that makes sense. It does. And I think one of the things you're talking about might resonate with a lot of people um, because one of the things we hear often and I hear on campus is that a lot of our students don't know why they're on campus, right? They've gone down this chute of taking all their classes and trying to be stellar students and to get to the best college ever and get a great degree, but then they wonder what they're doing there or why they've chosen this degree or where they're going next. And there tends to be a lot of anxiety uh, surrounding kind of that sense of purpose or meaning and value. And I think that's why things like the alternative spring breaks have become more popular or this need for better uh, civic education and understanding is so important because I think every young person and every person, no matter what their age, is searching for connection to something greater than themselves. I mean, if you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist on public radio KCBX. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I'm joined today uh, by Emily Mumford. She is coordinator for the SPLC on campus. I met Emily this summer while she was working at the Civil Rights Memorial Center in Montgomery, Alabama. And as I'm sure you can hear, she is a uh, beautifully poised and intelligent 24-year-old woman, young woman who packed her bags and moved her life from Michigan to Selma after doing service there when she was uh, in college. And when I met her this summer, I was so inspired. I wanted to share her and her story with all of you to maybe... um, make that inspiration contagious, to activate all of us to find our own inner passions, uh, our own inner fire or light to speak up and take part in something greater than ourselves. And I'd love to hear from you. Uh, 805-781-3875. Where is your level of activism? What do you think about this conversation? Did you know about the Voting Rights Act? Do you understand our history with the civil rights movement? And um, if you have any questions or comments for Emily. Heather, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hello. Hi, Heather, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you for picking up. Thank you, Elizabeth, for such a great topic. And also, Emily, thanks to you, carrying the torch. She is. Um, <laughs> my name is Heather. I live in Moore Bay. I'm a, a, live, a listener and uh, love all of our programs on KCBX. And um, what I'd like to add to the conversation today is things that are just like burning for me, when you say that um, education is the answer and there are a lot of students on campus that wonder why they're there, um, let me begin by saying there is um, one answer I can give right now, and, and I think it could spread throughout our community, and it's called the Encore Movement. Mm-hmm. And the Encore Movement is a national movement, and it's also... Um, an awareness um, of the benefits of engaging intergenerational um, communication and experience together. Mm-hmm. And basically, um, the boomers that everybody's worried about is going, that are going to suck down all the benefits from Social Security, actually, as we retire, a lot of us, because we have better health now and longevity is, going to give us a longer lifespan, and because we're the best educated generation to date, also the most populous, we literally are um, a tidal wave of social 
um, activism that can help solve problems throughout the society if we are engaged and if we're not put on the shelf and seen as being burdensome and, you know, spoken down to instead of just, you know, just saying, wow, you know, you've got this and that and the other kind of experience. What we're looking for as Encore movement is to stay engaged. It's good for us, as you know, keep our brains and bodies healthy and active into our 90s, which is very common now. And also, because of our level of education in general, and as I may mention, myself included, history of social activism that goes back to the 70s, um, we would love more than love, we are committed to this type of change. And educating the youth is exactly where we can be used, whether it's in at school, per se, or in, at the workplace. If we're involved, we've been there. And we. Uh, a lot of people don't stop to use the phrase wise elders. And literally, when you're talking about education, this is what most and many indigenous cultures have, and they respect. I mean, think of them around the world. It still is in existence, including in Japan. National treasures are the elders. Well, we have the opposite attitude in America for some reason, and I think it's really time that that is, you know, it recognizes being outdated. Well, and Heather, thank you for bringing that up because it's funny. It was kind of the next topic I wanted to engage in because Emily and I represent two far ends of the generational spectrum and connected uh, very deeply on this shared passion for civil rights. And so I'm, I'm hearing the same thing from you, that you have this wisdom. You actually carry the history of being there for a lot of the different movements and, and activism. And so, Emily, I'm wondering, you know, is there intergenerational interactions? Because you talked about partnering on campus with professors, but, but what do you think of this idea of how do we bring together the energy and wisdom of the boomers with the, the millennials? Well, Heather, I want to just thank you for adding in as well, too. I think that you bring up a really great point, uh, specifically with the Encore movement. And, you know, I think there's a lot of ways, Elizabeth, that we can really um, benefit from multi-generational um, relationships and education. And I think that there's a lot of ways for that to be done. I know in Selma, for instance, um, when we bring, you know, students learn more about service learning, we, you know, have a lot of elders from the community talk to them about their own experiences because you can watch a movie or you can read a textbook, but you're actually able to talk to an individual who, you know, walked the bridge on Bloody Sunday or was denied the right to vote before the Voting Rights Act or, you know, some of these key moments in history or, you know, people in the 80s and 90s and even today. I know, you know, there will be more and more, um, you know, as more and more movements continue, we constantly are living history. And so I think it's very important to involve, you know, other generations, and I think it's important, especially for individuals in my generation, um, not to negate the importance and value of really um, going outside of our bubble, going outside of maybe the friends that we text or are on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter with, but really being conscious um, and aware of those that are around us and all that they have to add um, to our lives and to our education. So. And I think that there is this gap, you know, this disconnect between the Encore movement and a lot of the on-campus activism because I, I dance in both places. And I know that there is a big uh, push momentum for mentoring, encouraging uh, people in midlife and old, you know, older age to mentor and partner with young people. But I think one of the challenges, because um, in all due respect to the boomer generation, the millennials actually are the are larger than the boomers at this point population-wise and is also considered the best educated, most well-traveled, and best volunteering generation ever. The millennials are putting together quite a resume as a generation, but I think one of the challenges is because you're so well-educated and so well-traveled and, and so accomplished, it's, it's easy to discount the, the wisdom of your elders. And I think that's been a real challenge is how to grow a sense of respect um, and, and 
compassion with the millennials so that they honor the wisdom. But also, on the other hand, the boomers need to approach their work with the millennials as more of a partnership and not as a teaching role. You know, yes, there's wisdom to be passed on, but I think to approach it as I'm going to teach these young people what needs to be uh, already sets up a disconnect. And I think maybe that's one of the struggles that it needs to be seen more as a partnership between these two very dynamic generations. Absolutely. I think that there's a mutual benefit in both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a really good point that you hit on, that there's, you know, a need for for, for both generations to see the importance and value in, in those connections and relationships. So maybe how we get started is that Encore somehow gets involved with um, starting these SPLC chapters on college campuses and college towns because right there you have access to bringing mentors to college students right on campus. You know, I encourage the Encore members to to use your energy and activism to join these college campus activism efforts um, and and see how they can partner. 805-781-3875 is a number to be part of this conversation questions, comments, experiences. I I opened up today talking about the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act. Were you taught about the Voting Rights Act in in school? Uh, Because apparently California fails when it comes to passing along the history of uh, the modern-day civil rights movement. Uh, 805-781-3875. My guest is Emily Mumford. Todd, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hi, uh, thanks, Elizabeth. Another good discussion, and uh, kudos to Heather for, you know, following her, her passion and doing something for social justice. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask a question, and it's kind of unclear how to ask it, but the connection between social justice and economic justice, and uh, maybe Heather's brief comments are yours about how you square that when it seems like um, the rich are getting richer, there's a debate about taxes uh, and uh, the one percent, you know, and the power, the the connection with our elected officials and money, mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court passing uh, legislation that says that uh, speech is money. And then, if you have time, real quickly, a comment from Heather about um, what she thought about Pope Francis's recent comments at Congress and otherwise, which I, I found very admirable. Thank you. I'll, I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Todd. And my guest is Emily, and Heather was our wonderful oh. caller that, about oh, the right. Encore Emily, movement. I'm sorry, Emily, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks for calling in, Todd. All right, so, Emily, what about the, the work with uh, justice when we have such a large issue with economic injustice? No, I think that um, economic justice, that is one of our key focus areas for SPLC on campus. I think, you know, we call it economic justice because we really want to raise awareness to the economic injustice that is taking place in the United States. And so, you know, I really feel that economic justice and social justice are synonymous because I think just as we've been talking most of this program about education and the importance for that, I know speaking for myself and probably quite a few other young people, you know, being raised um, in in a certain type of community and lifestyle and then going to college and attending my classes and, and all of that, I, I really wasn't aware of all of the economic injustice that was taking place. And so I would say that economic justice and social justice are, are really synonymous. But when we talk about activism, and I don't know if this is where Todd was going, but it's kind of where my head went with his comment, is... Mm-hmm. If we have such economic inequality, how can we expect activism? You know, if you're a college student who's graduating with $75,000 in debt and has trouble finding work, and then when you do, uh, your house payment is $3,000 a month. I mean, it's almost as if even if you're doing well, you're set up to not have time or energy to be active. And then if you're someone who's impoverished and lacks access to education, where is the ability or the effort or motivation to to be active in any way? Why would you fight for social justice if you can't, you know, feed your family? Right. I mean, that, that that's a great point as well, too. And I think you, you bring up a great point because it's not just, you know, the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich. I mean, I think a large part of America um, is faced with this. I know a lot of my friends out of college 
including myself, you know, we were found in these similar situations where you have all this debt and you're looking to find a job so that you can pay your bills. So I think more and more um, individuals in this country should be able to relate with the situation that you're describing. And I don't know that I have, you know, an exact answer for that. Um, But I do think that we all have a voice and we all have something that we can advocate for. I think every individual has their own struggles too, and I don't want to measure or compare those by any means um, to say that they're the same, you know, as other individuals. But I think it's it's important that with what we have, we do something. And I think it goes back to, and it's kind of carrying the, the conversation a little more philosophical, but, you know, we, we started off talking about the importance of vigilance and that if we, we need to pass along the values in history that led to the march from Selma and the passage of the Voting Rights Act, we need to have great vigilance in maintaining and understanding the fight that went into women's reproductive rights, um, you know, and understand that just because a law is enacted or passed, it doesn't mean that it's being enforced, as we're seeing is marriage equality right now, right? And I think you mentioned in Alabama, um, there are, uh, there is a, a resistance to uh, enact or upholding the marriage equality laws. And so how do we continue to engage citizens with activism if individual citizens are struggling just to stay alive. And, and I just think it's not really something we have an answer for, but something we need to think about. Uh, 805-781-3875. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. My guest is Emily Mumford. Um, we're talking about her work in uh, Selma and Montgomery, Alabama, uh, as an activist, um, as a volunteer, as a young woman who followed her heart after a service learning trip. So I'm dying to know, Emily, um, what's it like being the young white girl who moved from Michigan to the South and and now is trying to engage in the community and be of help? You know, Elizabeth, um, that's a question I've probably actually received um, a few times. (laughs) And I would say while I certainly have felt... um, some of what it would be like to be an outside agitator in the community that I live in, although a very small amount compared to those that came um, in 1965. I think the purpose and fulfillment that I have felt um, in, in moving to, to Selma and volunteering with, you know, the Freedom Foundation and then also working at SPLC on campus has far outweighed um, some of the struggle that I've also experienced. Um, but what I, would, what I would tell you is that it was a transition, just like I think it would be probably for most people from my background. But then I've also been um, comforted and pleasantly surprised to know that I'm not the only um, northerner, you know, down in the south who has had similar feelings and, and wanted to make um, a similar life change as well, too. So a lot of the colleagues that I work with at the center are from you know other parts of the country and have moved here for meaningful work. And a lot of the volunteers that I volunteer with in Selma are from other parts of the country as well, too. And that's not to say, of course, there's many Southerners that are supportive and volunteers and coworkers are right around alongside us doing the same work. Um, but it has been good to know that I'm, I'm not the only white girl, per se, that was interested um, in moving across country to, to do good. But I did want to add really quickly to Elizabeth that mm-hmm. one of the martyrs that you may have learned about at the Civil Rights Memorial Center, Jonathan Daniels, he actually died in Hainville, Alabama. He was a seminary student from Boston. And he was the valedictorian of Virginia Military Institute in 1961. And when he gave his address, he wished all of the people in the audience and his classmates the joy of a purposeful life. And I first heard that when I came to Selma in 2011, but that has always stuck with me. And it's really fueled my work on a daily basis when sometimes it does feel like, what am I doing here? Or I stick out like a sore thumb or, you know, are we making any progress? Or those different questions can come. And I just remembered, like, I know that I'm here for a purpose and I'd much rather be doing what was on my heart than going back to kind of the status quo of, you know, funneling through the classes and going, trying to find a job and, and then kind of just going through life the way that I thought I was supposed to. So I don't know if that all, you know, maybe makes sense, but that has been some of my adjustment, I would say, to the South. 
And I think for parents that are listening, uh, there must be that kind of pit in their stomach. I mean, I know for myself, I I wonder um, as a parent how confident I would be in packing up my children and saying, well, I guess this is where you want to go and, and sending you off. I mean, there's takes a lot of courage in, in the young person and changing their life and following their purpose full uh, work, but also for parents to be able to support this in their children. Because as parents, you know, we're told uh, that our job is to prepare our children for the workforce, to make them the most highly educated, well-traveled, and well-spoken generation ever. So there's a lot of pressure on parents to funnel their children uh, this way to to careers that give them success and financial freedom. And so there's, uh, I think, a lot of fear for parents to say or support their children in going in another direction, in a direction of activism, because I don't think we have been sharing the value um, of a life of activism or purpose as a life goal. I think we've had such a focus on the uh, economic piece that we've lost sight of the many different ways people can define their life. 805-781-3875. You're listening to a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. My guest is Emily Mumford. Belle, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. What's on your mind? Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that um, I was married to a military man, and we traveled all over the country. And one of the places that my husband was sent uh, and we all had to go, um, was Montgomery, Alabama. And that was at a time when it was the most unrest down there. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess we had our concerns. But one of the things that came up for my children, uh, when they would play at school, other children would come up to them and say, what are you, a Yankee or a rebel? Mm-hmm. And they had no idea what the children were talking about. So they'd come home all excited, and they'd say, what's a Yankee or a rebel? And I'd say, well, you know, you're, you're neither. We're U.S. citizens because we travel all over the world. And um, so we don't consider ourselves Yankees or rebels. So when she would say that to, to, to the children that they weren't either one, they'd say, oh, no, you have to, you have to be either one. <laughs> so my children were pressured, and uh, I remember hearing things from the pulpit in a church I attended that I couldn't believe I was hearing from the pulpit. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, the minister said at the end of the beautiful sermon that he gave about love that no, and I won't use the N-word, uh, if, if any came to the door, they would block the door and close the church up and vacate it. So it, it was it was very different from anything we had experienced before. And so, thank you, Bell. And I and I think it is important to hear these stories, as Emily was saying earlier, that it's easy to forget that this is modern history. It's not ancient history. No, <laughs> no, it's uh, it was in the '60s, and uh, it was quite an experience for all of us. A little tense down there at the time. <laughs> No, I imagine. I imagine. Thank you so much for taking the time to call. Emily, do you see this as still uh, an issue in the South? Are things equal and integrated, or do we still struggle with uh, inequities in the school systems or in neighborhoods? I would say we absolutely still struggle. Um, and I don't, I don't think that it's just in the South either. I think that it can be heightened maybe in certain areas of the country. Um, I will say one thing that really stuck out to me in Selma when I visited, and, it's, and I found out, you know, more since I've lived in the South, that it's not just in Selma, but the schools are primarily segregated, and they're segregated, you know, racially but also economically. And so there's the private school where it's majority um, Caucasian students, and then the public schools, which are like 99, you know, 0.1 or 0.2 percent African American. And I think that that's important to really share with the audience because I know myself before coming down, I'd heard about the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954, and kind of naively in my mind had thought that that had ended um, school segregation, and that is really not the case. So I think that some progress has been made, but I think there's absolutely more progress to go. And I think we spend a lot of time focusing on study abroad and work abroad and injustices abroad, and I think it's a little more glamorous um, 
to think that you're going to go abroad and make a difference in another country. But I, I so believe that every young person needs to have an education about what their country looks like in every state or as many states as possible, or how else do we fully engage as citizens? I think it's too easy to, to hibernate or, or to go into our cocoons. Michael, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Well, good afternoon. I, I wanted to uh, to share some good news okay, about good. <laughs> uh, younger generations inheriting participatory values and the like. And, and the good news is that a lot of the bad news is actually wrong with regard to uh, attitudes about apathy and, and the generational decline of participation. And while it's it's true that younger generations are, are less likely to uh, affiliate strongly with political parties and take part in kind of conventional politics, when we look uh, across history, this is actually one of the most participatory generations in American history. I actually so mentioned I, that, too, that you have the highest rate of uh, volunteerism, even more so than the boomers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've got to look beyond conventional politics. And when you look at the percentage of young people that are, are doing volunteer work or, or even, you know, specifically political work, so being, you know, a member of a, a political group like the Sierra Club or, you know, an explicitly issue-oriented uh, group, it's, it's a very participatory group. And so we need to, to keep that in mind. I agree. So, Michael, are you a millennial generation member? Well, it depends on how loosely you use the term. I'm more of a uh, Generation X, I guess, would be the kind appropriate of the, term. Yes, that kind of lost middle generation. We talk a lot about the boomers and a lot about the millennials, and I, like right. you, float in that middle lost world of <laughs> of not being. But but I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to, to make that clear that I have high... Uh, expectations for the millennials because of their education, because of their heart, because of how they've been raised to see people um, through a lens of equality more than any right. other generation. The The problem, though, is we have to make sure they understand that although they view the world through a lens of equality, the world does not necessarily live inequality and that those changes are going to have to be made. Those fights are going to have to still be fought that we can't chase the shiny objects of what's new and exciting uh, as far as activism, but we have to continue to maintain the fight for those fundamental rights uh, for all, because I think. Well, absolutely. And I mean, there's uh, there's something of the running on a treadmill, uh, analogy here that's appropriate, because uh, as you noted earlier, when we look at what's actually happening, particularly in state legislatures and some of the the restrictions, not just on on voting rights, but on women's rights and on uh, things that that were fought so hard for during the civil rights era, Mm -hmm. uh, that that, uh, those uh, are legitimately threatened right now. and, And so it's important for people to keep their their shoulders up against the grindstone. That's right. And thank you, Michael. And to know that there is work being done and there are places and ways to get involved. So, Emily, as we finish up today, remind everyone uh, how they can get involved quickly with your organization. Well, for those interested in SPLC on campus, you can get involved um, by visiting our website, splconcampus.org, and even on a broader scale by really you know, for those that are of the millennial generation to really educate yourselves and whether that's, you know, joining a club or finding a passion or talking to an elder, as we've mentioned, you know, on the program today, but but really um, digging deeper and seeing what there is that you can be involved in today. And then for those, you know, that are of the boomer generation or of the middle generation to really be able to share your stories and share your experiences with others as well, too, because going to take the collaboration of multi-generations to really make um, a substantial movement today. Thank you, Emily Mumford. You are my inspiration today. I am so happy I was able to have you on the air. Thank you to all who participated in the conversation. You can find out more on our website, thereluctanttherapist.com, podcast on iTunes, listen to previous shows at kcbx.org. And as always, thank you for supporting public radio, KCBX. KCBX.